One in six working age adults live with a mental health condition. So that's a sixth of your workforce. That's a really big number of people, especially when we think about the fact that almost 60% of the world is uh, working at the moment. This is not an issue to be ignored. That's Dr. Aisha Malik working for a world that supports, improves, and does not harm mental health. At the World Health Organization, Dr. Malik specializes in global mental health, including strengthening the capacity of countries to address mental health needs. Of note, she coordinated the development of WHO's guidelines for mental health at work released last year. She's also led projects to develop and evaluate a scalable youth mental health intervention in Tanzania, Lebanon, Jordan, and Pakistan, increase the accessibility of quality mental health care in the Philippines, and protect the mental health of people living with communicable conditions like HIV and TB and non-communicable conditions like diabetes. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. Mental health has been front and center for many employers with almost one in six working age adults experiencing a mental health condition globally. Today, Dr. Malik and I discuss some of the recommendations to prevent, protect, and promote mental health at work and support those living with mental health conditions. Dr. Aisha Malik, thank you for being with us today, all the way from WHO in Geneva. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We're here to talk about mental health at work and specifically the truly massive three-year effort you led that created the new World Health Organization guidelines published in 2022. Now, I know you're going to want to stop and give credit to lots of other people, and we'll let you do that, but you were the lead technical officer at WHO responsible for coordinating literally dozens upon dozens of scientific experts and stakeholders around the globe to reach consensus and produce evidence-based recommendations for governments, employers, NGOs, other interested readers. Can you just share how you think about the global impact of mental health at work? Mm, Well, thank you very much, uh, Luan, for that very kind introduction. And I think indeed I am going to jump in and say it is a a collective effort uh, run by all of us here at the at the World Health Organization Department of Mental Health and Substance Use, colleagues in other departments, and of course the many many different experts, uh, implementers, uh, and people with lived experience that we were working with to to bring this product together. Um, it felt very easy to have so many people and so many key actors involved on developing the guidelines for mental health and work. And I think that's because so many people actually care about this topic. It's really important to all of us, uh, especially as we all incidentally happen to be largely people who are working. Um, And it's important because of this good question that you're asking me about what this global impact of mental health at work is. For me, the question goes both ways. It's both what the impact of mental health at work is at the global level, but also what the impact of work can be on mental health um, as well. At the end of the day, one in six working age adults live with a mental health condition. So that's a sixth of your workforce. That's a really big number of people, 
especially when we think about the fact that almost 60% of the world is uh, working at the moment. This is not an issue to be ignored. Uh, This is something that affects a lot of people. Why should we care that it's affecting one in six people um, of working age? The answer to that and the answer to your question on the impact, it's really, it almost depends which stakeholder you're talking to. Um, I think if we think about decision makers at the government level and also at the workplace level, people are interested in what the costs are. And the costs are a trillion US dollars a year, largely due to the impact on lost productivity from the most common mental health conditions, which are anxiety and depression. And that's coming off the back of almost 12 billion uh, productive working days lost. So we're talking about the economic cost uh, of mental health in the context of work. And that is a huge impact to the global economy. But that impact uh, has more than just a financial cost behind it. So when we say somebody is, or a workplace has a high turnover, and that's why they, uh, you know, there's costs associated with uh, high turnover. What that means is a, a workplace or an employer is losing staff. Something's going wrong. Uh, and people are having to leave. Or if people are absent from work or they're not as productive in the work day as they could be, which are also part of these costs that we that we talk about, that means people are suffering when they're at work and they can't get the job done. Uh, they can't participate in the way that they want to. Or it means that it's so difficult to come into work that they're having to take the day off. So the costs for me, when I think about the global impact, are obviously the costs that are financial, but they're also the costs to people themselves who may be very affected uh, in the context of the work setting. Um, So for me, that's the global impact of mental health at work. And if I think about the flip side of the impact of work on mental health, I think that can be answered in many different ways. And has been that conversation has been so accelerated by what happened during and post the pandemic experience that the whole world went through, uh, really raising questions about our working conditions across multiple different sectors can impact negatively on our mental health. But at the same time, being able to participate in work under good working conditions is one of the most important things for people's recovery Uh, when it comes to mental health conditions as well. Yeah, I really love that perspective that work can both positively as well as negatively impact mental health. You talked about the costs and you talked about people's lived experience. How did a large, excuse the term, bureaucratic organization like WHO take into consideration people's lived experience? That's a really good question. As part of the different stakeholders that are involved in the development of the guidelines, we included people with lived experience um, in the development of the guidelines and in the review of the content. Uh, We also have people participating who work on the guidelines themselves who identify as people with lived experience as well. And these views are one way that there was direct involvement as the product was being developed. But there's another side to this, which is trying to collect new information 
about what it means to live with a mental health condition or what it means to be a worker or a manager and experiencing stress at work. And we did this through collaborating with an academic partner who developed a survey to ask questions uh, to different stakeholders. And we were trying to target very much people who work, people who have mental health conditions, so that we could understand what are your values um, when it comes to this topic? Or what are your values when it comes to uh, the different interventions that we're talking about here? Or you know, how important is uh, productivity for you? How important is it to have access to XYZ intervention? Or uh, what are the pressures that you're facing at work? So some of that information was collected directly. Uh, and that was really triggered, obviously, by the change of circumstances during the pandemic as well. And then when we look at the research, uh, all of the research that's led to um, this final product, within the research itself, there are um, opportunities to collect information about what people with lived experience are saying. And I think the concept of lived experience in this guideline means a couple of different things. It means living with a mental health condition or a psychosocial disability or a mental disorder, depending on um, the term that you prefer to use. Uh, it also means people who are living as workers uh, who may have a mental health condition or living as managers who may have a mental health condition as well. Mm, thank you for that. And then you yourself have experienced living and working in different regions. You went to graduate school at Oxford. Tell us a little bit about those degrees. I did a doctorate in psychiatry, which was a research PhD, um, followed by a doctorate in clinical psychology, which is the clinical practitioner's degree here in the UK to practice as a clinical psychologist. And yes, I um, both of those were at the University of Oxford and allowed me to specialise in research and also in the clinical area of mental health, uh, which was my intention before moving into the area of public mental health, so through the work with the World Health Organization. Yeah. Did you see patients before you moved into the public mental health and policy role? Yes, I did. Um, throughout the, our training, uh, we have multiple rotations, which means we get uh, a chance to work with uh, people of different sociodemographic populations, such as uh, adults, older adults, uh, children and families, people living uh, with learning or intellectual disabilities. Um, and then following my training and the rotations and working with uh, uh, people of different social demographic backgrounds, I worked in uh, the area of HIV and sexual health as a clinical psychologist. So this is supporting people who are attending um, a hospital that provided services for sexual health and for HIV. Let's talk about where the guidelines landed and what their focus is. One of the many purposes of this guideline was really to try to clear the air or, or make less muddy this issue of what do we actually mean when we talk about dealing with mental health at work? What, what are we actually talking about here? So the end goal was to try to have a series of recommendations that said, look, we've, we've actually tried our best to look at the evidence, uh, take into account people's views from different parts of the world, take into account the views of people that represent employers, represent workers, represent people with lived experience, 
and bring all that information together to try to have a coherent set of global recommendations that will allow people responsible for the health, safety and welfare of workers to make decisions that can aid mental health, whether that's preventing it or whether that's supporting people uh, living with mental health conditions and, and who are trying to or who are in work. Um, so that was the intention. And I think that's the aim that we strived for and the aim that we were able to reach uh, with this process. Let's start with organizational interventions. What Give some examples of workplace factors that influence mental health and why these are so critical. Yeah, so our, our organisational intervention, so our recommendation around this was to uh, for workplaces to have organisational interventions as a means of preventing, mitigating, addressing some of those risks uh, to mental health that you can experience at work. And there are a multitude of different risks that exist and they really... Um, the volume to which you might experience uh, these kinds of issues depends on the content of your job or the, the type of work that you're in. So some of the evidence that we were looking at was, well, what's the relationship between some of these risk factors and poor mental health outcomes? So thinking about things like uh, workloads that are not quite adequate. And an inadequate workload can actually, on the one hand, mean too much, work or under very high uh, pressure or very short timelines, but it can also mean insufficient work, um, which can be uh, just as impactful as well. Or it can be how much control do you have over your own work? Are you able to make decisions about planning your own workday? Or is your workday very much assigned to you and you have very little decision making uh, in your job? Uh, a big one, um, and it's one of the biggest factors in general associated with poor mental health outcomes, regardless of whether it's occurring in work or not, is uh, relationships at work, uh, specifically bullying. Um, and if people believe or are experiencing bullying at work, uh, this has a, a profoundly detrimental impact on people's work. So there's a cluster of different uh, risk factors that we've described uh, as part of the guideline and also as part of the policy brief that we published with ILO. Uh, and it gives a flavour of the research uh, behind uh, here are these risk factors and here are the outcomes that we're aware of uh, in terms of uh, the this risk factor impacts these symptoms. And what, something that I really want to point out is these risk factors are not necessarily explicitly saying, well, it causes a mental health condition or it causes a diagnosable problem. What we usually see is it influences the volume of symptoms somebody is experiencing and that could be pushing people into diagnostic status but it's certainly making them feel worse. Yes and so how specific do the recommendations get let's say if it comes to rooting out bullying supervisors mm. or providing greater predictability in scheduling. Yeah. Where do the recommendations go? Yeah, really astute point. Um, you may notice that the recommendations do not go into the volume of detail. And what we do is we provide quite a broad recommendation with the intention that this means that it should be adaptable to a variety of contexts because we're not just dealing with 
different regional or country income contexts in these recommendations. We're also dealing with very different work sectors uh, with very different issues. One of the things that really surprised us uh, during this guideline um, was that one of the biggest issues um, at work, which does impact people's mental health outcomes, which is uh, abusive behaviour, there was very little out there on uh, what can be done um, to effectively manage abusive behaviour. So this was this ended up being a research recommendation uh, because we included in the guideline quite quite the list of look. There's quite a lot of work that needs to be done in order for us to get more specific with recommendations in the future. Uh, so these are where we would suggest that future research could go, and this is off the basis of the gaps that were identified. Um, during this process. So I would love to have had something specific on bullying or love to have had something specific on, you know, how do we manage uh, diversity, quality, inclusion issues in the workplace? Um, but the, the literature wasn't there in the way that we were expecting. And that doesn't mean to say there aren't effective approaches. And that doesn't mean to say that the work that exists that is out there is moot. It There are ways that workplaces obviously have to deal with this. We have have the issues covered by the ILO on making sure that there are policies in place uh, to manage uh, harmful behaviour in the workplace. It's uh, in the context of this particular product, the type of science we were looking for wasn't there. Yeah, I was thinking that's a nice opportunity for you to explain the levels of evidence and how they guided the strength of the recommendations. Yeah, that's a good question. I think many people, if they take a look at these guidelines, they'll see some statements uh, along the lines of high high certainty or uh, moderate certainty, uh, low certainty or very low certainty. So this is terminology that um, means uh, something in terms of the quality of the evidence available. So, for example, uh, a high certainty of evidence, which is very rare, actually, in especially in uh, guidelines related to mental health. It means that the effect that we found that the intervention had on the outcomes that we're interested in from the research that we've chosen to include in the guideline is probably a very uh, true, uh, uh, very true estimate of the real effect that that intervention really has on those outcomes. So, if we do more research uh, on this uh, intervention and its impact on those outcomes, it's really unlikely that um, uh, it's really unlikely that that effect is going to change. Like we're pretty certain that this is what it is, and it, it works in the way uh, that we're saying it works. Now that is a real rarity uh, when it comes to a lot of science, but also um, mental health in particular. And what you'll see for mental health is much more of a um, variation between very low to moderate. So, for example, very low means it could be that if we do more research on this, that the estimate of the effect uh, could change. Or um, low means it's sort of the next grade up from that um, in terms of our confidence. Now, there's different 
there's different factors that we take into account that influence how we and the research teams uh, give this um, qualification of the certainty of the effect. So things like the design of the research. So having a, a randomized controlled trial, it increases our certainty on the quality of the evidence. Um, uh, whereas observational studies might reduce the certainty. Now, this is very important in the context of uh, complex research in complex environments like workplaces, because doing a, a clinical trial on an intervention such as, for example, a psychological intervention, it's quite easy for us to use a randomised controlled trial design. Uh, so we're more likely to see... Uh, better certainties for those kinds of uh, trials or, the, or those kinds of recommendations that have used mostly that kind of RCT evidence. Um, but you're more likely to get non-RCT designs um, in uh, research that, for example, is related to organisational interventions. It's quite tough uh, to do a randomised controlled trial, but it's not impossible but it's just harder. That's fascinating. But I'm really was interested and wanted to be sure to ask you about manager training because oh, yes. three quarters of large employers responding to a business group survey last year hmm. were planning to provide manager training for mental health in 2023 to help uh, managers recognize mental health issues and how to direct employees to appropriate services. So, and that appeared to be one of your very strongest recommendations. I'm actually quite excited to hear you talk about that and I'd love to learn more about it. Indeed, uh, we think that uh, training people who may identify as managers or who are fundamentally supervising, usually this means sort of middle management, is one of our strongest recommendations because to train people responsible for others in just basic identification of what mental health can look like how to support an employee appropriately if they're distressed without becoming their clinician, but rather to make adjustments to a person's job if they're experiencing a mental health problem or find ways to reduce uh, stress in the working conditions for the team. Uh, this type of training for managers went a long way, first of all, in uh, improving their knowledge uh, and their stigmatizing attitudes or their behaviors, i.e. inclination to support others, uh, which was very exciting to see. But even more exciting was the fact that it seemed to actually impact uh, their direct uh, workers' help-seeking behaviors. So the fact that your manager goes through this training and you as a member of their team, therefore, presumably via the mechanism of your manager's behavior change, are then more likely to seek help for yourself. That's really important. And that's what we want to, that's what we want to see. We want to see people being able uh, to be in a climate uh, in their workplace where they can feel comfortable to seek the support that they need. So you're, we're assuming that the, that kind of training is reducing um, bias and stigma and, yeah, and making employees who know about the training, especially feel much more comfortable. Yeah, uh, this is this is the this is what the evidence seems to indicate so far. The idea that your manager might then be better able to have a conversation with you um, if your manager seems to detect that something might be difficult in your life at that moment in time, or if you, as the employee, wish to disclose 
difficulties that you might be experiencing with your mental health. So first step one is your manager is now uh, better equipped and skilled to have that kind of conversation with you and have it appropriately. And this is why I keep emphasizing this point of nobody's asking um, your everyday supervisor or manager to become a clinician. It's really about mm-hmm. appropriate human support, active listening, and then being able to uh, refer your employee um, through to the supports that you either have in your workplace or in your local community. You know, whether it's, for example, have you considered to see your primary care practitioner or we've got this particular counsellor um, in our human resource department, are you aware of it, etc.? And some of those same considerations would apply to peer training, that we wouldn't want peers to feel that they had more knowledge or certainly any ability to treat or advise. What do you think about peer training? Yeah, so really good question, um, because the content of the training on paper sounds very similar. Um, but the process of what it seems to mean in practice might be different. And we this was brought to our attention by the fact that the, the evidence seemed to have quite a different outcome. So for example, with tr- I think what you're calling peer training or what I might call uh, training um, workers in their own literacy and awareness for mental health, yes, it changed uh, people's knowledge and stigmatizing attitudes. Uh, but what we didn't see, unfortunately, was any change in your likelihood to go seek help for yourself or your likelihood to influence your peers in seeking help for themselves either. Um and we, us and our experts had a lot of conversations around this and trying to understand what's going on here. Um, and right now, at this moment in time, until we have further research, we can't say with any determination, but a hypothesis might be that, well, one's manager or supervisor is in a direct position of power over you. So there's a sense of responsibility there um, and a sense of protection for that person's role in their responsibility for you. Whereas when we're peers in the workplace supporting each other, there is not necessarily that same sense of obligation or responsibility that we have. And there can really be boundary blurring um, that could be a potential issue. So the question is the appropriateness of being able to support a peer. Um, I think colloquially we've heard about the people feeling the need to have some kind of support themselves if they are a peer supporter in the workplace. I know a lot of people really value um, peer support and that kind of training. I think what's important at this point in time is just to say the research is showing that it it does improve knowledge, it does reduce stigmatizing attitudes, but it's not getting that behavior change that we want to see. So it might be a good idea for employers to allow that voluntarily, certainly not to make it mandatory because that's time that's cost and something has to be repeated i don't know what if you have any recommendations on Mm -hmm. retraining because i know from the trainings that you know i've been through it's not one and done yeah Uh, yeah there are many good points there in terms of the repetition side of things what it appears to be is that the effects for these various trainings or various interventions that we cover in the guideline have a set duration such as six months What we're not able to tell, though, is whether that is the fixed duration of the effect or whether if with longer time for the research, we would have a clearer picture. So repetition is needed. 
I think many of uh, the current adult working generation hasn't gone through a school system that's necessarily trained them in these things either. So these are new pieces of knowledge for us. These are new skills that we're having to do and use. And a one-time training, especially when trying to solicit behaviour change, is not sufficient. It is something that needs to be repeated. What I would like workplaces to think about is what are they choosing to invest their resources in? Precious resources are limited everywhere. Uh, and resources for mental health couldn't be more limited if they wanted to be. It's, it's not the popular kid on the block when it comes to thinking about what do we want to do to change people's well-being. So I would say what is important for you as a workplace right now, if you want to see your employees comfortable in their teams and in a position that they can seek help when they need to, I think manager training is certainly the strongest recommendation from our side. Peer support, peer training or workers training for mental health literacy and awareness is really highly valued. It's often one of the easiest trainings to use in a work setting. It's quite easy to set up, it's quite easy to run, but it might not be giving you what you want. If you're wanting to put a training in place because you want to see a change in people's behaviour, which ultimately leads to a change in how they're feeling, if they're feeling highly stressed or if they have started to have mental health symptoms, you're going to need more than just one training for workers to do that. Let's pivot to another type of intervention, psychosocial or focusing on stress reduction and mental health promotion at work, the role of physical activity, and whether or not it's true that WHO recommends yoga at work. Indeed. Um, yes, the individual interventions um, are part of our recommendations as well. So we have recommendations on organizational interventions, the manager training, the workers training, individual interventions. And then we also have recommendations specifically around return to work for people with mental health conditions and reasonable accommodations and supportive employment as well. And just to sort of flip back to your previous question, this is one of the reasons why we say a comprehensive approach is needed. You can't just do a siloed intervention and hope that this is going to profoundly impact the mental health of your workforce. If you have the resources, we do need to think about multiple different levels, especially around the fact that, for example, these individual interventions of providing psychological support or the opportunity to do physical activity are important they absolutely do reduce emotional distress and some of them might have particular impacts on positive mental health and some of them might have impacts on work-related outcomes like um, work effectiveness. Without making changes at the other levels of the workplace, what we learned from people's values is that this starts to become a bit of a blame game. Because they're individual, it really is asking the employee to take responsibility for their mental health. And that's true. We do have to take responsibility for our health. There's more than just the individual level at play here when it comes to the workplace. Uh, there's the opportunity to prevent people from experiencing risk to mental health at work, which is why we would say the organisational approaches are really important. There's the opportunity to have managers who are very equipped in how they can support their teams or lead their teams, which is why we make a call for protecting people's mental health at work in that way. So the individual interventions are, and the sort of stress management side of things are one part of it. And in fact, many types of physical activity approaches, including walking, including strength training, and including yoga, 
seem to be part of a package of different what we call leisure-based activities that had an impact uh, on improving mental health outcomes. What do you ultimately hope the guidelines will achieve? How ideally will governments and businesses respond? I think one of the things to start off with is these guidelines from the World Health Organization are an evolving piece of work and never finite. And the intention is it is a continual learning opportunity which seeks to drive change and action in an evidence-based way, which means that we want outcomes to be achieved in accordance with the recommendations, but also that people are implementing interventions that are safe, that aren't going to cause harm, and so on. So step one is that these guidelines are really at their core for people responsible for the health, safety, and welfare of people who work. And they are designed to allow the decision makers who have that responsibility to make informed decisions when it comes to commissioning, buying in, or implementing interventions to support their workforces or the workers that they're responsible for. In the next five to 10 years, which is approximate amount of time WHO will observe changes in the evidence for uh, since the release of this guideline, we're hoping to see people uh, take those decisions uh, and be using the guideline to inform the interventions that they might be advocating for as part of their workplace policies on mental health or at the national level as well. So in our work with the International Labour Organization, who we collaborated with on the policy brief at Mental Health at Work, which accompanies this guideline. That's the product that takes the scientific recommendations and puts them into a framework that speaks to the core stakeholders of government, but also of employers and also the organisations and bodies that represent workers and employers as well. We've provided various different uh, actions that we would hope to see. And the basic level, mental health is often neglected in the context of occupational safety and health. There's really a much bigger focus on physical health or preserving physical life. So there is a desire to see either true integration of mental health into the relevant policies related to occupational health at the national level or standalone policies where that makes sense. And that's true in the workplace as well. Just the opportunity to see employers actually thinking about having policy on mental health or really thinking about the fact that this is something that's going to be important to be thinking about and resourcing in their workplaces. I think at a societal level, hearing more about the issue of people living with severe mental health conditions and their inclusion and participation in work, I think will be an important, I hope, narrative shift over time in the next few years. We do talk a lot about preventing mental health uh, problems in the context of work and protecting mental health at work, and that's very important. That tends to be a conversation that can inadvertently exclude people living with severe mental health conditions because we don't then tend to focus on the conversations about return to work programs or reasonable accommodations or supporting people to even gain employment when they're really desiring to do so. So I'm hoping to see that narrative shift or that cultural shift over time as well. Well, speaking of culture, how do regional and country considerations affect both the development and especially the implementation of 
these recommendations? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I might pivot a little bit and think about it in terms of the income status or the resource status um, of regions or of countries. And that's something that we take into consideration when we make the recommendations and that have to be taken into consideration when it comes to implementation. So, for example, on this um, issue of the recommendation we have around uh, supported employment, so that's making sure that people with severe mental health conditions have access to supported employment uh, in order to help them uh, obtain and maintain um, competitive uh, or paid work. This is a recommendation for which evidence is largely for people living with severe mental health conditions, which uh, we uh, see in the literature described as, for example, people living with symptoms of psychosis, which um, can appear in conditions such as schizophrenia, or people living with uh, intellectual disabilities, or people living with severe depression. Um, But actually, we saw that there was growing evidence for these supported employment programs for people living with uh, what are termed uh, common mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression, common because they are uh, just more prevalent um, at the global level. Um, How does it work? How does supportive employment for people with severe mental health conditions work? What what does that mean? And, And I'm not... I'm also not seeing the connection to income. It just seems challenging regardless of country income. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. It becomes a numbers game. So supported employment uh, is a program which can include actors from the vocational sector, but also the health sector, uh, working together to support a person to be able to gain work. And that usually involves also then collaboration with an employer. And so that could be job skills, That can also be um, mental health related support as well, such as social skills or um, uh, stress management strategies. But it's it's done in a way to allow entry into work. And then when a person is in work, they've got this active um, agent that is there to support them uh, as they uh, start work and that their employer also has the capacity to provide that support to them as well. And it becomes a numbers game from the perspective of, well, this is why I said common mental health conditions. That suddenly means that that's a much bigger number uh, of people uh, that would potentially need that kind of support. Um, And it was our expert group were keen to ensure that we specify that this kind of quite intense resource intensive support Um, was specifically for people living with severe mental health conditions, who by prevalence is a smaller number. So that's where it became a bit of a country income and resources-based decision um, to influence what the recommendation there would be. I think that doesn't stop uh, contexts who have the resources uh, to think about it from the context of common mental health conditions as well. Any advice for employers who are looking to assess the effectiveness of their own programs and strategies or or any other last words of wisdom? Yeah. um, On the issue of employers who are looking to assess the effectiveness of their own strategies, I actually want to take the pressure off employers. And I want to say no one is expecting you to suddenly conduct your own research because effectiveness means to do 
decent quality research to see if something really, really works. And that's quite intensive for an employer to be able to do uh, on their own. And I think if uh, employers with the time and the resources are genuinely interested, I think I would encourage collaborating with academic partners. That's one way to do things. The other way, if you're just a workplace that wants to see, is our new program actually having the impact that we want it to have? Is it worth investing in? Shall we budget for it next year as well? To me, the question then becomes, well, what's your program that you're doing and what are you expecting as the outcomes here? So, for example, you might be doing a manager training and you want to know, well, actually, how many of our managers participated in this training Are they able to maintain the skills that they got from that training six months on or straight after the training? I think it depends on the program. I often wonder, because I do get asked this question a lot, and it makes me reflect on, well, what are the existing programs that workplaces are doing? And is there anything that you can learn from how those are evaluated that would apply to this? Or is there an issue where employers are finding this so significantly different that we actually need to give a little bit more time to think about how do we evaluate this. As a final question, where do you see the guidelines going? What is your focus over the next few years? Yeah, um, we are really looking now at making sure that we can provide the tools that uh, countries and workplaces might benefit from off the back of and inspired by the guidelines. So The first piece of work that we have already started and investing time in that we hope a beta version will be available next year is we're developing content for training managers and supervisors on those knowledge, stigmatizing attitudes and and skills when it comes to supporting their supervisees and their mental health. So it's WHO is working on manager training for mental health um, and that's really inspired by the strong recommendation from the guideline and we'd like to produce content that is potentially usable as a standalone training if workplaces wish to use it in that way or could be something that's integrated into existing leadership curriculums whether it's outside of the workplace setting or inside of the workplace setting and then the next piece of work that we will um, hope to start next year is looking at what can WHO do to think better for supported employment for people living with severe mental health conditions. So this is really thinking about how do we ensure that people living with severe mental health conditions are able to obtain and maintain employment? Is there something that WHO could be doing on this particular area? So those are going to be our two areas of focus in the coming years. Very exciting. So really interested to hear about the manager training guidance. Will that actually be a plug and play curriculum that employers can use? Yes, we are designing it. So it's the actual training. So the first version will be training that designated person in a workplace, for example, HR or occupational health could pick up and actually deliver the training to your managers or your supervisors in your workforce. And we're hoping down the line, we'd love to think about digitizing that content to make it a bit more widely accessible. Is there a cost for that? 
Uh, no, uh, the World Health Organization does not attribute a cost to its products. Everything is published under Creative Commons. So the idea would be that we would publish it and that workplaces would be free to take that content and use it as they wish. They could run it exactly as it's published or they could adapt it to their work settings, translate it uh, and use it as they need to as well. And we will provide guidance on, on how to do those kinds of adaptations as well. Well, inspired by your British accent, I'm going to say that's lovely. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you. Great talking to you. Yeah, you too. I've been speaking with Dr. Aisha Malik, mental health specialist at the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. To explore the guidelines we've been discussing and a related policy brief supporting implementation, go to WHO's website and search Guidelines on Mental Health at Work. The executive summary is available in Arabic, Chinese, English, French, Russian, and Spanish. I'm Luann Heinen, and this podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you liked the conversation, please rate us and leave a review.